Turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We'll be reading beginning in verse one. And let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, as we contemplate the kingdom 
of our Messiah. I pray that our hearts would lift, that they would exult in the glory that is to come. I pray that as we read your word, it would be clear to us and that our hope would be fixed upon what you have written and upon what you have promised. And we pray even as we contemplate this, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We await you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In our study of the book of Zechariah, Pastor Jeremy has finished the first eight of 14 chapters. And as he mentioned, the final six chapters that we still have to deal with have a significant amount of eschatology. As most of you already know, eschatology is the study of the last things or the end times. And because of the eschatological nature of the last six chapters, we thought it would be a good idea to just pause in our verse-by-verse study and look at two crucial questions related to eschatology. The first one Pastor Jeremy covered over the last two weeks, and that is, how does the church relate to ethnic Israel? There are similarities we know between God's uh, promises to Israel, God's interaction with Israel, and God's promises to the church. But to summarize two weeks from Pastor Jeremy, the church is not Israel. If you missed the last two weeks, that's what he said. (laughs) And he gave many reasons (laughs) for why that is true. And this morning, what we want to look at is a second question very closely related to Israel and the church, but with a different focus, and that is, what is the kingdom of the Messiah? What will the coming reign of Christ look like? All Christians believe that Christ will return. All Christians believe that Jesus is king. But among genuine Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christ-exalting Christians, there are vastly different understandings of what his kingdom will look like and when he will return. And because Zechariah addresses these exact issues, we want to look at the issue today. Where does Christ's kingdom fit into God's plan, and what will his kingdom be like? Now, obviously, in one message with roughly 30 minutes, we are not going to give an exhaustive treatment of the kingdom. In fact, what I plan to do is simply introduce you to the ideas related to it and then spend most of our time looking at what the kingdom will be like, what it will be like. We're going to look at the two major views of the kingdom and then we'll see where the kingdom fits into the end time events and then we'll look at what the Bible tells us about the kingdom. So first, the main views of the kingdom. The millennial kingdom, as we read in Revelation chapter 20, the kingdom will be 1,000 years. And that might seem obvious to you. Well, how long will it be? 1,000 years. Uh, But that's not how all believers have understood it. So the two main views of the millennial kingdom, first, amillennialism, 
gets its name, ah, millennial, meaning no millennial, no millennium, because they don't believe that the kingdom will last a thousand years. This is what they believe. I'm not gonna explain why, but this is what they believe. One, we are currently in the millennial kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom, okay? That's the first thing that they believe. And the kingdom is not physical, it is spiritual. So clearly, the, what's going on in Revelation chapter 20 and the other promises related to the kingdom aren't physical, they're spiritual, and we're in it. Second, as we read, what does that mean about Satan? Satan right now is bound. He was bound at the first coming, and he is currently bound. That's what amillennialists believe. And third, they believe that when Christ comes back, he has one thing to do, and that is establish the eternal state. So if you were to sit down with an amillennialist, which as Jeremy mentioned a few weeks ago, is by far the majority view of Christians throughout the world, this is what they would explain to you. We are in the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Satan is bound. And when Christ comes back, he will set up not a kingdom, but the eternal state. I think that's a, a fair summary of what they believe. From what I have, have read and my discussions with amillennialists, they would, all, they would affirm those major points. Lots of clarification, lots of detail and nuance, but those basic principles are there. The second view is premillennialism. This is the position of Martinsdale Community Church. Its leaders has been for some time and is very popular in the United States. That, by the way, is not an argument in its favor. That's simply reality. <laughs> Um, uh, premillennialists believe that we are awaiting the millennial kingdom. We're waiting for that 1,000-year kingdom, and it will be a physical, literal kingdom. We believe that Satan is not currently bound, and I should think it wouldn't be hard to convince anyone of that, but he will be one day bound and put in a pit and have a cover put over him so that he can't deceive the nations. That's what we believe. And third, when Christ returns, he will establish the millennial kingdom. Now, believers, all millennialists, they're believers, premillennialists, they're believers, and yet come to this basic understanding of what's yet to come, and there's a radical difference. I, I as I said, don't have any real time to defend, to deny I'm just telling you what it is, but I do want to take a moment to give you at least a taste of why it is we believe this. Look at 2 Samuel. Actually, let me, let me do this. You open to Acts chapter 1, okay? And just stay there. I'm going to get there in a minute. Acts chapter 1. When David was king... He wanted to build a temple for the Lord, and the Lord told him, no, you may not build me a temple. But when the Lord spoke to David through Nathan the prophet, this is what God said to him in 2 Samuel 7, 13. He, 
speaking to David about David's son, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God has given a promise to David that David's son would sit on David's throne forever. And then in Luke chapter 1, when the angel is speaking to Mary, you know these words, listen, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne, not of heaven, but the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Sound pretty straightforward? This is the promise given to David and given to Christ. Now in Acts, where you have your finger, look at verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. So this is at the end of the, the, the earthly ministry of Christ. Christ has died. He's been crucified. He rose from the dead. And this is what happens towards the end. Verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what was it that Jesus spoke about for those 40 days to his disciples after his resurrection? The kingdom of God. Now, this is on their mind, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. For 40 days, the resurrected Christ is lecturing the disciples. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So 40 days of, of speaking about the kingdom of God the resurrected Christ, about to ascend. And look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? After 40 days of lecturing on the kingdom, did any of the apostles think that it was merely spiritual? What was their expectation even after 40 days with the resurrected Christ. Now are you bringing the kingdom to Israel? So this was the expectation of the Jews, and it is also our expectation, that Christ will return. He will one day restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, where does the millennial kingdom fit in end-time events? There's so many end-time events, so many different topics, so many important issues. Where does it all fit? Just very briefly, I've given you the references there so you can look them up if you want. We won't read them. First, it follows the Great Tribulation. Okay? First will be the Great Tribulation, then will be the Millennial Kingdom. The seven seal, trumpet, and bull judgments will all take place. 
The battle of Armageddon will take place. The second coming of Christ will happen and the binding of Satan will happen. We saw that in Revelation 20. It is after those things take place that he sets up the kingdom. And then after the kingdom, we also saw this in our reading, Satan will be released. And then the unrighteous will be resurrected and judged And then the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will arrive. And that's in Revelation 21. So it fits in between the eternal state and the great tribulation. That's where the kingdom will be, and it will be 1,000 years. Now, look at... No, that's it. Turn your page over. That was an easy first page, wasn't it? I wanted those down on paper so you could refer to them later, but we have no more time for those things than that. Than that. What is the characteristic or characteristics of the millennial kingdom? What will it be like? What will it be like? First, there will be a physical transformation of the earth. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 and, and listen to what the Lord tells Isaiah. <clears throat> what will this kingdom be like? There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of guessing. And I don't think that's all bad. But when the Bible tells us, it's best to start with that. And the Bible tells us so much So let's just look at what it tells us. First, in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's din. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Now that is a description of what the kingdom will be like. And the first characteristic of the kingdom is the physical transformation of the earth. The curse will be lifted. The curse will be lifted. So that all of the curses that God put upon the earth when Adam sinned, 
will be removed. As we read in verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf will play together. Can you imagine a lion playing? Well, I can imagine a lion playing with a fattened calf. They will play together. The curse will be removed. Second, sickness and disability will end. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Can you imagine what it will be like when every weakness that you have, every disability, injury is undone? That is what the kingdom will be like. There will not be sickness anymore. There will not be disability anymore. But we will be whole as the Lord intended us to be. What a day that will be when we can sing with Kayla Barth. What a day that will be. That is what the kingdom will be like when every frailty, every weakness that we have will be lifted. What a hope. That's the physical transformation of the earth. The curse is removed. Our sickness, disease, and disability are gone. The second characteristic of the millennial kingdom are the inhabitants. Who will be there? Who will be there? Well, not surprisingly, believers will be there. This is a little perhaps confusing if you haven't thought about it before, but there will be the sinless and the resurrected. As we saw in Revelation 20, those who died will be resurrected and the saints will inhabit the kingdom and they'll reign with the Lord. But also there will be sinful and unresurrected believers there. What happens to those when Christ returns who weren't yet dead? Well, nothing is said of their resurrection, so what, is, what are we left with to conclude? They continue to live, yet they don't have resurrected, glorified bodies. So they're still sinful like you and me. They're still weak, they're still frail, minus all the curses, so there are, unbelie- or there are believers there who aren't yet resurrected. Now, if that confuses you, consider Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall there be in it, the kingdom, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So when somebody dies at the age of a hundred in the millennial kingdom, they will be considered a youth and they will be considered accursed because you wouldn't be dying at 100 years old. Can you imagine that? Like, what? He's dead at 100? And we say the exact opposite. Now, I can't believe they made it to 100. That is incredible. 
Well, they're going to die in the kingdom. We can't die if we're resurrected. Once you have been resurrected, death has no power over you. So who is it that will be dying? It can only be those who have continued unresurrected into the kingdom. And then second, not only are there believers, but there are unbelievers. What? Well, not at the beginning. The only people on the face of the earth at the beginning of the kingdom are those who are believers. That's very clear from Revelation 20 because out of the mouth of Christ comes a sword that destroys everyone who is not his own. He destroys all of his enemies. But what happens to those not yet resurrected saints in the kingdom? They have not yet been resurrected. We know that in the resurrection there will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage, but they aren't yet resurrected. They will continue in their lives and they will be given in marriage and they will marry. And when you are married in a sinless, curseless earth, what do you do? You have children. And some of those children will be believers and some of those children will not. Otherwise, what do you do with Christ putting to death the wicked? Where did they come from? He already killed all of his enemies. And what do you do with the end of Revelation uh, 20 where, Christ, or where John writes that when Satan is released, he leads a rebellion against the saints. Well, where are you going to deceive people if everyone is resurrected and perfect and sinless? You can't do it. Satan couldn't deceive a resurrected saint. There have to be unbelievers in the kingdom. So those are the inhabitants of the kingdom, both believers and unbelievers. At the beginning, it will be all believers, but as time goes on in the kingdom, there will be those who do not believe. What about the religion of the kingdom? What will our spiritual lives look like? Well, first, Christ will be the high priest from his kingly throne. The last time I was uh, with you, Zechariah 6 was our passage, and you remember this verse. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Both thrones shall have a council of peace, the throne, the royal throne, and the priestly throne. Christ will be the high priest. Second, Jews, Jews will be the leaders and Jerusalem central. The Jews will be leaders of the religious life of the earth. In Zechariah 8, we just looked at it last in Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There is a preeminence to the Jews, a preeminence to the Israelites in the spiritual life of the world. Third, there will be a temple there will be a temple and memorial sacrifices. Zechariah, Ezekiel chapter 40 
all the way to chapter 48, discusses the details of the temple and the sacrificial system of the millennium. Now, if you're thinking about the millennium, what would you think wouldn't be there? There's no need for sacrifices, are there? Christ has paid the price. There's Why? The only, the only thing that I can come up with is there some sort of a remembrance or a memorial, something like our communion, which we'll take today. There is a reminder, a remembrance in the sacrifices that will go on. And I'm sure God has other purposes in it as well. And fourth, the Gentiles and all the nations of the earth are fully included. Fully included. Zechariah 14, 16 says this. And I can't wait till Pastor Jeremy gets to this passage. Zechariah 14 is breathtaking. Verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts, feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So the Gentiles and the nations are included. And elsewhere, you can read about all the nations and the kings from the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship. So there is full inclusion for the Gentiles, even though the Jews are leaders. And then fourth and last, let's look at the government of the kingdom. The government of the kingdom. Number one, Israel will be the leading nation. Israel will be the leading nation. Isaiah 60, let me, yeah, let me read Isaiah 60, verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gate shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So the king of whatever countries are there at that time, they say that United States still exists. I doubt it will. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But let's say the United States does exist. The king of the United States will issue a decree that says, we're all going to Jerusalem. And I want to be at the front of the line so that I can bring a gift to Christ. The Jews will be the leaders. The nation of Israel will be the leader of the world. The saints will rule with Christ. Number two, the saints will rule with Christ. I, I just want to read one passage, Revelation chapter 2 Listen to what Jesus tells John. Well, this is in his letter to Thyatira, but Revelation chapter 2, this is what Jesus says through John. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And that should remind you of Psalm 2, where 
the Lord, Yahweh, says to Christ, ask of me and I will give you the nations and you will crush them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Jesus says, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, to him I will give the authority over the nations even as I myself have received authority from my father. So Christ has the authority, but who does he give it to? Who does he extend it to? The saints. So that the saints will have authority on the earth. Jew and Gentile alike will be leaders, rulers with Christ in the kingdom. And third, Christ will be king on David's throne. Christ will be the king on David's throne. What did God promise to David? What promise did he make to him in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7? Your throne will be established forever. Whose throne? David's throne. And so Christ will be king not on a new throne, not on some new invention, and not on a spiritual throne, which is true, but it's not just that. He will be king on David's throne. Remember what the angel promised to Mary? He will sit on David's throne. And there's four characteristics about the throne of Christ that I want to finish by looking at, number one, Christ has all power. He has all power. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees in a vision of the night, one like a son of man who comes before the ancient of days. And to this son of man, the ancient of days gives all dominion and authority over all the nations. There will be no limit to the power of Christ. There will be no law he can't undo, overturn. There will be no feat he cannot accomplish. There will be no weakness or need that you have that he will not meet. He will have total power. But as we know in this world, total power isn't enough, is it? As the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We are prone to corruption, but he is not. He has all power, and second, his judgments are righteous. All of his judgments are righteous. We already read in Isaiah chapter 11 how he will not judge according to what he sees or what he hears, but he will judge righteously. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Can you feel today how unrighteous our land is? I, you can't watch anything in the news without saying, why are they doing that? Why did they make that decision? How did the judges come to that conclusion? Why are they coming up with that law? There is no righteousness, but then 
there will be perfect righteousness. So that if there is such a thing as a speed limit, there will be a verse at the bottom of the sign. (laughs) You will not hear a law from the Lord to which you will say, I don't get it. But you will say, yes, I am glad that law is there. Give me another. I love your laws. I delight in your statutes. But lest we think Christ has perfect power, all righteousness, and that's it. Let me read to you Isaiah 40 and listen to this Christ who will be our king. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This will be our king. He will not simply rule with the rod of iron. He will not only give us righteous mandates, but he will lead us with affection. His heart is full of affection and compassion. Every one of us has a father or parents or a boss who gets this mixed up, who has all power and no affection, who has all affection and no power. And we know what a mess it is when a parent loves their kids so much and wants them to be a free spirit and do whatever they want and everyone else in the room is pulling out their hair because they need a law. Christ knows perfect power with full affection. And when he looks on us, his citizens, it will not be, get out of my way, or serve me, or you better get this right, but it will be one of love and compassion, like a shepherd gathering up a little baby lamb in his arms. And what do you want to do when a lamb is in your arms? But snuggle it. The affection and compassion is there. That will be our king. And let me finish by saying, his commands... His command, what he will require of us, is one thing. It will be gladness. It will be joy. What he will say to us is rejoice. Be glad in the Lord. Exult in him. It will not be any longer do this and do that. There will be no burden, but only delight. Psalm 68.3 but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before the Lord. They shall be jubilant with joy. That will be our life and our duty in the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given your son a kingdom, that you have not broken your word, that you have not cut short your promise, but you have pledged that you will make him to sit on David's throne forever. We long to see his return. 
We long to see that kingdom. And I pray that you would help us to live in light of that kingdom. In Christ's name I pray, amen.